Welcome to today's podcast from Coastline Calvary Chapel in Gulf Breeze, Florida. We hope this message encourages you and brings light into your life. This morning, we're in the book of Revelation. Uh, we're going to start in chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, want to encourage you to, to grab it, open up to that place in the book of Revelation. We're almost finished with this series. Our focus this fall has really been laser-like focus on this theme, that these chapters in the book of Revelation evidence to us that Jesus, who is the righteous judge, is full of mercy and justice. And for me, as I've had the opportunity to prepare and teach some of these messages and, and to learn from them, I have really seen that theme evidenced through these chapters, that God is a God of justice. He has to be for him to be God. But also we see how intentional and how just resilient his mercy is constantly calling people to repentance, constantly giving opportunity for individuals to respond to his love, to his grace, to his mercy. And we'll see that once again this morning as we dive into Revelation 15. Um, if you're there, Revelation 15, let me know by saying Jesus is God. Jesus. Yes, I like that. Jesus is God. Well, in our study of the book of Revelation, we've come to somewhat of a significant and even as John, the author of this book, will say this morning, kind of a marvelous point in what's known as the tribulation and more specifically, the great tribulation. Now, you may ask, what's the difference? The, the tribulation is that time period, that future time period of seven years in which Jesus, as this merciful and just judge, will seek to wake up a nation of Israel, seek to shake up a people who are far from him through his mercy and his justice. And I don't know if you've been picking up on this, but each chapter that we read each week, it's like he's constantly almost delaying the fullness of his justice because of his mercy. And this morning... We're at this significant, John will say this marvelous point in what's known as the great tribulation, that, that last part of the tribulation, the last three and a half years, where the beast or the antichrist, as he's more commonly known, reveals himself for who he is. Daniel chapter 9, an Old Testament book, Matthew chapter 24 we're given clarity that there will this be this event in this time period where Jesus and Daniel identified it as the abomination of desolation. Revelation 13 speaks of this, where the Antichrist, he reveals who he is, demands worship, and sacrilegiously breaks a covenant that he established with the nation of Israel. And in chapter 15, verse 1, look at what the author says. Then I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. He says seven angels were holding seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. You see, in chapter 14, last week, we learned the heart of God, with his, his merciful heart with his judgment. And maybe you remember from verse 15 of chapter 14, where, where this angel tells the one, the son of man, Jesus, who has this instrument of judgment known as a sickle. Verse 15 reads this, swing the sickle for the time of harvest has come. The crop on the earth is ripe. It's time for judgment. The earth is ripe. And maybe you remember this from last week, that the word there in the Greek language for ripe means over-ripened, almost withered, to the point where it's totally ready in time for God's judgment to be poured out. Meaning God has been mercifully withholding the full extent of his judgment. But what does verse 1 of chapter 15 say? There's a marvelous event of great significance where God will bring his wrath to completion. That's what we're looking at this morning. See, today, we're going to see the culmination. We're going to see the climax. We're going to see the completion 
of God's judgment in what's known as the Great Tribulation. And here's what we'll see this morning, Lord willing. In chapter 15, it's a shorter chapter, but John describes that he saw seven angels, verses 1 and 2, verses 5 through 8, preparing to pour out these seven final judgments. And also, we'll see in this chapter, specifically verses 2 through 4, that he heard something. He heard this song of praise being offered to God from a very specific group of people. And then in chapter 16, he begins to describe these judgments that he spoke of in verse 1 of chapter 15, those that bring God's wrath to completion. I mean, in, in chapter 16 this morning, if you're picking up on it, you go, oh my goodness, he's covering two chapters this morning. Yes, it's going to be okay, but it's, it's good they go together. But, but in chapter 16, here's what we'll see. We'll see the place and the punishment of this final judgment. I mean, in verses 1 and 2, we'll see that through these angels, judgment is poured out upon the earth. Verses 4 through 7, that the rivers and springs, meaning all the fresh water, they're going to become like blood. Verses 10 and 11, we'll see that the throne of the beast, the Antichrist, will be plunged into darkness. But you know what we'll also see? Throughout this, we're going to see some proclamations. We'll see the place and the punishment of the judgment for sure, but there will also be these angels, the ones who are tasked with pouring out this judgment, saying, God, this is true. This is right. This is holy. And sadly... We'll see in verses 9, verse 11 of chapter 16, that in the midst of this kind of extended, merciful hand of God to not fully pour out his judgment completely, and now in chapters 15 and 16, where it finally comes to fruition, you'll still see individuals curse God rather than to turn to God. You'll still see people refusing to turn to God. So in chapters 15 and 16, this morning, we're going to kind of see the preparation and the delivery of these last seven plagues that, that bring to completion God's wrath and these judgments that we've been reading about all throughout this fall. So before we jump into this this morning, I think this text, any text does de definitively, but this text deserves a time of prayer. Th this is one of the most culminating, clear chapters on the wrath of God through his judgment being poured out upon the world. So I feel like we should pray. Would you agree? Okay. Lord, the text before us is a weighty text. But Lord, we come to it this morning prepared, aware, clear on how merciful you've been throughout the ages of humanity. How merciful you'll be even as things come to an end one day. God, you're a God that's full of mercy and justice. Only you can rightly blend those two perfectly together. Lord, I ask this morning as we open up your word that our hearts and minds would be open to you, that your spirit would speak. Lord, that I would have the ability to serve your people well. So God, that you are seen clearly in your word and our hearts are illuminated and how our lives can and should look in light of who you are, in light of what you're saying. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would bring clarity, that you'd bring conviction, that you'd bring encouragement, that you'd bring instruction as your word is open before us this morning. Lord, I pray that in a precious name, a powerful name. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. 
Let's read verses 1 through 4 as we begin this morning to look at this preparation and delivery of God's final judgment. Verse 1 of chapter 15, coming from the New Living Translation, this is what John writes. He says, I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea mixed with fire. And on it stood all the people who had been victorious over the beast and his statue and the number representing his name. They're all holding harps that God had given them and they were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. And all nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. In this vision that John has, he sees all those who are victorious over the beast, over his statue, over his number, that number 666. These things are spoken of in the 13th chapter of the book of Revelation. And as John sees this, to him, it seems that they're standing on what seems to be like a, a glass sea mixed with fire. They're holding harps that God has given them. They're, they're singing a song known as the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. Moses. What an interesting time to bring up that name in the book of Revelation. A sea of glass mixed with fire. You know, one of the things to remember about the book of Revelation is that it contains more than 500, how many? 500. 500 allusions to the Old Testament. One author once said, see, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. They interplay together. And so in the book of Revelation, John, who is originally writing to a very Jewish audience, he's constantly reaching back to historical or symbolic or cultural dynamics that those who knew their Old Testament would be very familiar with. 70%, how many? 70%. 70 278 of the 404 verses that make up the book of Revelation make reference to the Old Testament. So why do I bring that up? Well, he mentions Moses here. Pop quiz, Moses, from the Old or New Testament? Old and New. Okay, this guy says New. Yeah, because he's here right now, right? The Old and the New, but primarily the Old, right? Why is this mentioned? Let me share with you what one author says. He says, this entire scene is reminiscent of Israel following the Exodus. The nation had been delivered from Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. And the Egyptian army had been destroyed by the Red Sea. In thankfulness to God, the Israelites stood by the sea and sang the song of Moses. The tribulation saints whom John saw and heard were standing by a sea of glass in heaven, just as the Israelites stood by a Red Sea. And they're singing the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses is recorded in Exodus 15. And here's a refrain from that. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. You see, this scene would give great assurance and endurance to the suffering saints in any age of the church. Listen to this phrase. This is why I wanted to put it up on the screen. This is why I wanted to read it today. It is possible to be victorious over the world system. One does not have to yield to the mark of the beast. Through the blood of the lamb, we have deliverance. Our Lord's work on the cross is a spiritual exodus accomplished by his blood. Do you remember the darkness of Revelation chapter 13? Where it's like the whole world is worshiping the beast. He seems to be at the pinnacle of everything. All those that oppose him, he is given the ability to kill, to destroy, to hunt down. 
chapter 14, which we looked at last week, we're given this kind of pullback that John has given this vision of the whole panoramic of what God is doing in the tribulation time. And if you remember from last week, we're given this insight that Jesus wins. How many of you are glad about that? That the enemy will fall. And so what John sees here in chapter 15 is something that for those who had been rooted in the Old Testament, the, the story of Moses leading God's people out of the land of Egypt, that beautiful Exodus story, there's interplay here of what's happening. God is, God is using John to speak to those who are originally reading this in a language, in a tone, in a culture where they would have got the point. What's the point? that we can endure what's before us because of what Jesus has accomplished. Let me read that phrase to you one more time. Through the blood of the Lamb, we have deliverance. Our Lord's work on the cross is a spiritual exodus accomplished by his blood. You see, in this time and in our time, the enemy is very real. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy the relationships you have in life. Be those personal in the family, be those in business, be those in the church. The enemy doesn't want synergistic relationships. He wants relationships of imagination and speculation where, where you're guilty before you're innocent. That, that's the kind of dynamic the enemy wants for the relationships in your life. Where it's not that you believe the best in one another, but you expect the worst. That's the enemy at work. And here's the dynamic. We're seeing it in culmination, at its peak, at its pinnacle in the book of Revelation. It's like the enemy's no longer hiding behind a veil in Revelation. He's going full force with deception, with destruction, with his temptations, with his ability to distract and discourage, and at this time, kill the very people of God. But as Warren Wearsby says, this author that I just read, he says it's possible to be victorious over the world system. How do I know that? Because Warren Wearsby says it. I, mean, I like Warren. Never met the guy. I can't wait to meet him in heaven. You know how I know that? This is how I know. You are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that all those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same spirit living within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. That's Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 14. How do I know that I can be more than a conqueror, as he'll say later in that chapter, chapter 8, that I have a spirit that is a victory? Because God's word says so. That's my source of truth. That's my north star. That's my point of clarity. That it's through the spirit of God that we have victory in this life over the world system. Life is not all about this life, but the life to come. And God's Spirit has given us victory in this life. And church, let me see your eyes. In the life to come, there's victory. That, that's what John sees here. These individuals are singing a song. Now, here's what I think. I think it's possible for this song to be kind of a woe is me song. These are the martyrs of the tribulation time, those who didn't take the mark of the beast. We know from God's word that because of that, they wouldn't have had the ability to buy or to sell. They were thrown into prison. They were killed. 
One author says this in their song, the tribulation saints praise God's work as well as his ways. God's work are great and marvelous. His ways are just and true. And there's no complaint here about the way God permitted these people to suffer. It would save us a great deal of sorrow if we were to acknowledge God's sovereignty in this same way today. And he quotes this verse from the book of Psalms. The Lord is righteous in some of his ways for some of the select people. No. He is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. See, I don't know exactly what your week's been like. I don't know what you've been going through. But I do know that this encouragement stands. It is possible to rise above what the enemy wants for your life. You don't have to succumb to his temptations, to the dictations of the flesh. The cross is a spiritual exodus for us. We are given new life in Jesus that's meant to be lived lived in love with him, connected to one another, and on mission with him and for him. A life where we trust, trust that God is sovereign. You know, in the position that I have with our, with our church here, I'm often asked a lot of questions. And for some reason, there's this, this perception that I always have the answer. Dads, are you familiar with this? Moms, are you familiar with anybody that's alive and breathing? Are you familiar with this? You know, with the Lord, we trust him. We're on a need-to-know basis with God, where we walk by, it starts with an F and it ends with an eighth. Do you know what it is? We walk by faith. We trust him. We don't walk by clarity. I wish we did sometimes. Does anyone, oh, here it is. Here's, here's what this day will look like. No, we trust God. And as we trust him, we see him provide. As we trust him, we see him bring healing where only he can. As we trust him and follow him, he is marvelous in all of his works and all of his ways. But church family, it's trust. It's not clarity that we look for in everything in life. It's him that we look for. Watching and waiting and seeing what he will do. And I love what we read here, what John sees, what John hears. Those that are victorious over the Antichrist, recognizing with all of creation, God, you're holy, you're right, you're true. Now, before we look at this final culmination and completion of God's judgment, look at what John sees and how God prepares to deliver this judgment in verses five through eight. John writes, Then I looked and saw that the temple in heaven, God's tabernacle, was thrown wide open. The, the seven angels who were holding the seven plagues came out of the temple. They were clothed in spotless white linen with gold sashes across their chests. Then one of the four living beings handed each of the seven angels a gold bowl filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven angels had completed pouring out their seven plagues. John is like preparing us for this scene of God's judgment. The temple is filled with smoke, God's glory and power. No one can enter the temple until the judgment is complete. It's coming from his temple, his tabernacle where he dwells, meaning he's in control. And these seven angels, the, these aren't like the, the vigilantes of heaven or the antiheroes that many movies are made about today, right? These are angels clothed with spotless white linen with golden sashes, meaning their judgment is pure, is righteous, comes directly from God. And here's the thing I want you to get. This judgment is long overdue. Remember that word in, in verse 15 of chapter 14, that it's ripe, it's totally ripe, it's almost rotten, it's withered. It's time, God. You've been so merciful, mercifully withholding judgment till it's over-ripened time for judgment. 
And at the expense of this, I want to belabor this point. The interplay between God's mercy and justice. Because what we're about to read in chapter 16, it's gnarly. Gnarly. I mean, right now, as we're going through our daily in the word devotions, uh, we sit down with our kids every morning at eight o'clock and, and watch the little two or three minute devotional and then hear from the kids about what did God speak to you? And right now we're going through this, this season in the people of God's then the season of people of uh, the people of God in the book of Joshua, where they're conquering the land. And they're told to kill the Amorites, kill these individuals. It's like a lot of death. And when I'll ask Liam, what did you hear about today? We should kill people. Like, no, 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 no. That's, a, that's not what the Bible's telling us to do. Like, but when you read the Old Testament, when you read the New Testament, about, especially what we're about to read, like, wow, this is intense. Like, as you read the book of Joshua and Judges, all these bloody battles, and God's like, wipe them out. Don't even make them their, your slaves. Kill them all. Like, Wow. Who is this? How does the mercy and justice of God work together? I want to belabor this point because I think it's important. And I want to read something to you to do so. Listen to this. In Revelation 15, God says, I've been patient with human rebellion and depravity, and now the bowls are full. In Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, he's giving an example here, you're going to be the father of a nation that will sojourn in another country for 400 years. Your people will be afflicted and enslaved because of the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Listen to that phrase. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, while Israel was held captive in Egypt for 400 years, God was giving the Canaanites an opportunity to repent and turn to him. Tragically, they didn't. 400 years is a long time. Anyone agree to that? Yeah. While Israel was held captive in Egypt, God waited for the Amorites to turn for their, from their bizarre and evil practices, but they did not. So finally, when the iniquity of the Amorites was full, God said, enough is enough. Destroy them. Did he do so because he's cruel? No. The Amorites were doomed, damned, lost, gone, toast, curtains, dust. They were so sick that in ordering their annihilation, God was simply putting them out of their misery. And this author writes this. I camp on this point because people who read the Bible casually or hear a story on a Sunday sermon occasionally can think that God is cruel. We must explain to them how patient God is, but that we must not mistake his patience for apathy, impotence, or approval of sin. For while the wheels of God's judgment turn slowly, they do indeed grind thoroughly. If you've been following along in the book of Revelation with us at all, Maybe you came on that weekend when David Guzik was here and he talked about how kind of the cycles of God's judgment that he's about to pour out. It's like he's pouring out his judgment and then he pulls back. He pours out his judgment and then he pulls back. Well, here in chapter 16, he pours out his judgment. It's time. Like it says in chapter 15, verse 1, this is marvelous, this is significant, God's wrath is going to come to completion. And what we're about to read in chapter 16, the earth has never experienced these kind of cataclysmic events that we're about to read. It is the most intense chapter of judgment we'll read in all of the book of Revelation during this time of the great tribulation. Why? Because God is cruel and he doesn't care. No. 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 Time after time after time, he's extended his hand of grace and his hand of mercy for repentance. But because God is God and good, he must be just. There must eventually come that time where his justice and his wrath come to completion. So that's what we're about to read in chapter 16. As we read this, I want to ask us to do something. Let's stand together. I want to read, not the whole chapter, but much of it, as we consider this significant, this marvelous thing that's yet to come. 
And if John the author would write that it's significant and marvelous, I think it merits our ability to stand and hear it read this morning. Verse 1 from chapter 16, here's what John writes. Then I heard a mighty voice from the temple say to the seven angels, go your ways and pour out on the earth the seven bowls containing God's wrath. I just want to pause there for a moment. I don't know the tone of God, his voice, but I know what it's like to have six kids and know what it's like when I go, okay, I've, I've given as much grace as I can. It's now time for, for judgment, so to speak, or consequence. And I, I, know, I know you're standing. I don't want to belabor this, but I'll say this. Giving out the consequence brings no joy to me. And I just wonder what the tone of God's heart is there. Go your ways, pour out on the earth the seven bowls containing God's wrath. He says, so the first angel left the temple, poured out his bowl on the earth, and horrible, malignant sores broke out on everyone who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his statue. And then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse. Everything in the sea died. And then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs, and they became like blood. And I heard the angel who had authority over all the waters saying, you're just, O holy one, who is and who always was, because you have sent these judgments. Since they shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, you've given them the blood to drink. It's their just reward. Verse 7, I heard a voice from the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, your judgments are true and just. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, causing it to scorch everyone with fire. Everyone was burned by this blast of heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over all these plagues. They did not repent of their sins and did not turn to God and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. His subjects ground their teeth in anguish and they cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores but they did not repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. And then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great Euphrates River. And it dried up so that the kings of the east could march their armies toward the west without hindrance. Okay, you may be seated. I want us to catch the weight of these words. See, as God is directing these angels to pour out these bowls containing his wrath, I don't know if you picked up on this, but it's not reckless, it's not random, it's specific, it's measured, and it's focused. The first angel, you'll see a specific place and punishment, so on and so forth with the remainder of the angels. But did you notice the parallels that you see in these judgments with other judgments that we've read, like in chapter 8 of the trumpet judgments. And these judgments also once again remind us of the plagues of Egypt. But there's something different about what we read in chapter 16. These judgments, known as the bold judgments or the vile judgments, they seem to be like rapid fire judgments coming in quick succession, one after the other. And they're aimed at preparing the way for that final battle known as the Battle of Armageddon and the return of Jesus. And here's what we see in these first six judgments. First judgment, horrible, malignant sores. So I've got some slides of some horrible, malignant sores. No, I'm not going to do that. But like, <laughs> gnarly. But uh, you can imagine. It'll be poured out upon the earth, specifically those who worshiped the beast and took his mark. The second judgment, the sea becomes like blood and every living creature dies. We've seen nothing like this ever before. 
Now, is this some kind of red tide that just kind of killed, like an algae thing that kills? Who knows? It says it becomes like blood. What we need to know is that everything dies and God's in control and he's bringing judgment. The third judgment is that the fresh water is polluted. All types of drinking water. Dasini, Vos, Topo Chico, Berkey. It's not going to keep it from being bloody. Like that's what's happening here. God is bringing judgment and it's intense. Sores are upon everybody. Everything in the sea is dead. There's no fresh water whatsoever. And at that point, do you remember what the angel said in verses 5 through 7? You can read it there, but I'll summarize. This is holy. This is just. This is what is deserved. This isn't God being cruel. This is God. A God, because of his love, who's pouring out justice finally. Perhaps you remember from last week from that Croatian theologian who I read this article from. I'll just read a little bit of what that said from last week. He said, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evils. This individual from Croatia who experienced atrocities in his country when he realized the horrific nature of sin. He came to this conclusion that God isn't wrathful in spite of being in love. God is wrathful because of his love. There's a standard. You see, in the fourth judgment, the sun scorches everyone with fire. Everyone with fire. And it doesn't change the heart. Verse 9, it says, Everyone was burned with the blast of the heat, and they cursed God. One author wrote this, The wishful thinking of some that men would repent if they only knew the power and the righteous judgment of God is shattered by frequent mention in this chapter of the hardness of the human heart in the face of the most stringent and evident divine discipline. Meaning that for some, mercy, God's pouring it out, giving time. And then when there's finally judgment, the heart just continues to harden. This fifth judgment, which is directed at the beast and his reign, you read about it there in verses 10 and 11. That his kingdom is plunged into darkness. Darkness. You know, we've seen darkness before. The fifth trumpet in Revelation 19, in Revelation chapter 9. Or that plague in Egypt, that ninth plague. It's interesting. Read that there in verse 10 where it says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne. Kingdom is plunged into darkness. And, and the subjects are like grinding their teeth. It is so bad. And here's what's interesting. Even with the inability to speak, they're grinding their teeth in anguish. What does it say in verse 11? They're cursing God as they're grinding their teeth. It's like they're snarling. I mean, does anyone remember? We watched this movie when I was a kid, Old Yeller. Do you remember that movie? I'm going to ruin the plot line for you. The dog dies in Old Yeller. Why? Well... He gets bitten, right? Rabies. Becomes nasty, snarling, gnarling, and, and he's a threat to every good and pure thing around him. And so Travis, this, this guy that's it, that's his dog. What does he have to do? Has to kill the dog. There's nothing that will reach the heart of these people. They're snarling at God with grinding teeth. And so we read of this sixth judgment in verse 12 that God allows darkness to come to show that he has complete authority over the reign of the beast. And now we read in the last half of this chapter that God is preparing a way for it to finally come to an end. This battle of Armageddon, the return of his son, 
Look at verses 12 through 16. It says, Then the angel poured out his bowl on the great Euphrates River, and it dried up so that the kings from the east could march their armies toward the west without hindrance. Verse 13, And I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs leap from the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. They're demonic spirits who work miracles and go out to all the rulers of the world to gather them for battle against the Lord on that great judgment day of God the Almighty. Look, I will come unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all those who are watching for me who keep their clothing ready so they will not have to walk around naked and ashamed. And the demonic spirits gathered all the rulers and their armies to a place with the Hebrew name Armageddon. Now, John is beginning to describe the first of the two events that will happen as the great tribulation, that, that final three and a half years of judgment, come to a close. He's describing a global war. And at the end of this chapter, he'll describe a cataclysmic earthquake. These are the final two things. And this sixth judgment gives us insight into this global war. Commonly known as the Battle of Armageddon has nothing to do with Bruce Willis. But the river Euphrates dries up, making it easy for, for the kings of the east, John says here, to move toward the Holy Land. Who are these kings? Well, they're the rulers from the Orient who invade Israel. And John sees something wild, frogs. Now, here's something interesting. Remember how many allusions there are to the Old Testament? This is a pop quiz from like 20 minutes ago. Anyone remember how many? It's in the hundreds. 500 allusions, yeah. Frogs. They're seen in a negative light in, in the Hebrew culture and in many cultures in this time. And frogs here, he likens into demonic spirits leaping from the mouths of the dragon. He's using symbolism here to describe something that these individuals, the, the individuals under the authority of the beast and the false prophet, they have this deceptive ability to entice the kings to come to battle. And seemingly, you know who this battle is against? God. Like at the point of all this judgment that's being poured out, it's like those who are left in humanity with the sores and the teeth grinding and the scorched sun, and they're like, you know what? We can take on God. That's, that's kind of like what it seems like here. One author puts it this way, and I find this helpful. He says, why do the nations gather? Well, remember what will have transpired over the course of the first five bowl judgments. The world will be shrouded in a thick darkness. Everyone will have bowls on their sun-scorched bodies, and yet these armies will march toward battle. Why? Apparently, they've been deceived into believing they have enough firepower to eliminate God. Satan knows that Jesus' second coming is close at hand, and he will use the Antichrist and the false prophet to bring the military might of the world together in Israel. He will get the combatants to believe they can overcome God, but in reality, God will be in full control of all that takes place. He quotes Zechariah here, that I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. I'll go forth and fight those nations as in this day of battle. Zechariah 14 is a prediction, is a prophecy concerning this battle that's to come. But this author writes, really, there won't be much of a battle in the battle of Armageddon. God will simply put an end to it all. He will come and take over the end. We'll see that in, in the next few chapters but what John is seeing in this vision, as he's declaring this, writing this, it's interesting that he there quotes the words of Jesus, a warning to be prepared in light of who Jesus is. Jesus says, I come unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all those who are watching and waiting, keeping their clothing ready. Now we come to the seventh and final judgment. And we'll see the second and last event of the great tribulation. Verse 17, John writes this. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a mighty shout came from the throne in the temple saying, it is finished. 
thunder crashed and rolled, lightning flashed, and a great earthquake struck. The worst since people were placed on the earth. The great city of Babylon split into three sections. The cities of many nations fell into heaps of rubble. So God remembered all of Babylon's sins, and he made her drink the cup that was filled with the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island disappeared. All the mountains were leveled. There was a terrible hailstorm, and hailstones weighing as much as 75 pounds fell from the sky onto the people below. They cursed God. Read this last line. They cursed God because of the terrible plague of hailstorm. One of the most intense chapters of all the Bible, Revelation chapter 16. You see this judgment of God coming to completion, culmination, climax after centuries and millennia of mercy and grace extended. You know, in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, the devil is known as the prince of the power of the air. It's interesting here as this seventh angel pours out this final bowl, he pours it into the air. And as we read the next few chapters, chapters 17 through 19, we'll see the religious, political, and military systems of the world judged. And in chapter 20, finally everything is done. The rule and reign of the enemy will come to an end. Come to an end. For us as believers in this age, the church age, the rule and reign of the enemy and the ability to have a penalty for our sin on our account is done. Christ is victorious. And as we spoke of earlier this morning out of Romans chapter 8, his power over you is done. Amen. By the Spirit of God, you can crucify and put to death the deeds of the flesh. You don't have to live angry, bitter, frustrated. You can be free. You don't have to live in lust and greed and pride. You're free in Christ. But it is still very much a reality, and it'll be ever more the reality in this day, that the presence of the enemy is still a very real thing. One day it'll be judged. His authority, this seventh judgment that we're reading that's being poured out into the air, his rule and his reign will be done away with completely. Let me ask you a question. Is anyone excited about that? That one day, death will be done with completely. Destruction. Like Jesus will rule and reign. But there's still so much to come. You know, this is interesting. You can Google world's deadliest earthquakes because as we read here, that there's an earthquake that's coming. to such great extent of its damage that since people have been on the earth, it's never been experienced. So I Googled, well, let me, I want to find out what have been some of the most horrific earthquakes. If you Google it, you'll find a couple of different sites. Some of them I wouldn't go to, but this one was good, where I just list the top five. Now, I don't know how they know some of these dates. Like, you know, in China, in 1556, there were 830,000 deaths from an earthquake. We can remember what happened in Haiti in 2010, and the numbers can be a little bit conflicted no matter which reports you read, but over 300,000 people, their deaths were attributed to that earthquake. These are horrific. But when it comes, that prominent city of Babylon will split. The nations will be as a rubble. Everything in the, in the ocean, the islands, the mountains, they all disappear. This horrific hailstorm. And chapter 16 ends in this sad way. They cursed God because of the terrible plague of hailstorm. You know, today we see this culmination, this climax, this completion of God's judgment in this time frame known as the Great Tribulation. 
What's our response, right, this morning? What's our takeaway? I hope, I pray, that in some way in our time together this morning, you've been given an element of clarity, maybe a bit of a reminder of the interplay of God's justice and his mercy. That he's not this vengeful God that just can't wait to judge you and, and just snuff you out and every little mistake you make, he's right there. But like those Canaanites, 400 years, given time to respond. And finally, when they become old yeller, so to speak, he has to judge. And that's what's happening here in the time that is to come. But be reminded that of God's mercy and his justice that he's patient. He's patient. And as John is writing this to these early readers in the first century, I really believe one of the intentions of his heart is the same for us today, is to be reminded that we can endure anything that God allows into our lives because of what Jesus has accomplished. The cross, as it were, is a spiritual exodus for us. No matter what we're going through, because of who Jesus is and what he did on that cross, you and I have the power of the Spirit of God living in us and we can walk in victory. I, I want you, I need you to be reminded of that. That God is not against you, he's for you. And his justice and his mercy, we can trust God. We can trust God. Like that song of Moses, God, your works and your ways are right. You're right. So where should that leave us at a place this morning? Hopefully it doesn't leave you like that last verse of chapter 16. I'm just going to get bitter and get hard. No. Fresh surrender. If there's a, a phrase, two words that I could leave you with this morning... That's where I want to be this morning before the Lord. Just a sense of fresh surrender to him. That God, I want my heart to be pliable in your hands, not hardened. But recognizing, God, that you are so merciful and so good and so gracious and so just. And you delay your justice, but eventually your justice comes. And that that's makes you even all the more good, Lord. You have this ability to balance mercy and justice completely and rightly. Just as these angels are saying throughout this chapter, God, all your works and ways are right and true, and that's who God is. So here's what I'd like to do as we close our time together this morning. I'd love the ability just to pray over us as a congregation that there would be a spirit of fresh surrender in our hearts to the works and the ways of God that you would be able to trust him in his sovereignty. Not always looking for clarity of every single situation and then stepping into it, but trusting God because of who he is. Romans chapter 8, that his spirit is in you. That song that we sang this morning, those names of God, that's who he is. Adonai, the great I am. So this morning, may there be a fresh sense of surrender in our lives to him in every way because his works and his ways are perfect. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join us again as we dive into the scripture going verse by verse here at Coastline Calvary Chapel.